This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. Vatican II looks a little quaint in the rearview mirror of several decades. People outside Roman Catholicism think of it as, well, kind of the Western Church's foray into the spirit of the age, maybe a little departure from the spirit of God's Word. Roman Catholics are divided over it as well, and that division was highlighted this week when Pope Francis reversed Pope Benedict on the Latin Mass. Have the media been able to rightly explain this complicated story in Roman Catholicism? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Why do you think that journalists should see Pope Benedict XVI as the middle ground in the Roman Catholic worship war involving the Latin Mass? It's simply a matter of logic, but it's also a matter of telephone numbers and names that they should have in their Rolodex. And let me explain what I mean there. You're aware of the fact that frequently you and I end up talking about the fact that the the media tends to define everything as left versus right, when in reality there are often other positions in the middle. So let's just talk our way through this Latin mass story for a second and what has happened here and why so many different kinds of people are so upset about it. First of all, let me just run through some questions. Are there, you said many Catholics oppose Vatican II. I would say some Catholics oppose Vatican II, and frankly, there aren't that many of them in their purest form. But do they exist? Are there people who say Vatican II is a false council, this pope is not really the pope, and it's wrong to celebrate any mass other than the traditional old Tridentine Latin mass? Do those people exist? Yes, they do. They are out there. And in a strange sort of way, I actually think those people are probably cheering what Pope Francis did, because from their perspective, it shows that they're persecuted, and it sends people their direction. It makes people think, we've got no other options. We have to go with one of these genuinely radical groups. And that's that's all we can do now. The Pope has kicked us out. You know how when a liberal is elected to the presidency, it's really great for fundraising for conservative groups? You know, and all of a sudden their mailing lists get longer and their talk radio shows get bigger. This is the same kind of situation. So on the true right, you have you have groups, I guess the best known one would be the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, founded by the late Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. And these are the folks that, for the most part, their relationship with the Vatican is tense, angry. They've almost been kicked out. St. Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict wanted to find a way for them to stay in the church. And that's a really tense situation with them. That's the right wing. Okay, on the left wing, 
are there people who really believe that Vatican II didn't go far enough? And that, and here's the key phrase, the spirit of Vatican II is helping the church listen to the Holy Spirit and evolve, evolving doctrine on moral theology, on liturgy, on a host of different predictable issues related to sexuality, etc. These folks really, really clash with conservatives. Now, have you seen any evidence of that in American church and political life over the last decade or two? Absolutely. Okay. So, and a lot of people say that 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 the kind of that right now in the Catholic Church, the older you are, ironically, if you're ordained, the more likely you are to be one of those Vatican II 60s priests who believe Vatican, like I said, Vatican II didn't go far enough. And for that group of priests, bishops, etc., you simply have to get rid of the Latin Rite. You have to get rid of the Tridentine Mass, and you have to get rid of people who would say that the texts of Vatican II, the actual writings, are okay. We may need to debate how to apply them, but we accept Vatican II. As one bishop, I'm trying to remember who said this, at some point we may need to reform the reform, which means we, we may need to see if something bad has come out of Vatican II. Even if Vatican II was intending good, for example, what has happened to confession would be a great example of a question that those people would ask. Okay, so on the right, we have the true anti-Vatican II radicals who have been schismatic at times. On the left, you have the spirit of Vatican II is leading us by the Holy Spirit into new changes and in doctrine and worship, etc. I guess the best example of that right now would be the bishops in Germany who are beginning to embrace same-sex marriage. They're suggesting, well, you know, what would be wrong if we let Lutherans take communion in a Catholic church? You know, what would be wrong if we give everybody like one divorce, you know, before we start taking that seriously? Why don't we evolve? Okay, so that group on the left really does exist, and it includes some bishops, it includes some cardinals, it includes some seminaries. Those folks are out there. So that's the left. The anti-Vatican II people who do exist are the right. Who's in the middle? This is where what Pope Benedict did a very interesting thing. He tried to say, I believe that the ordinary form of the Mass, which is the Novus Ordo, the Vatican II Mass, said, I believe that the Novus Ordo Mass is the ordinary Mass of our Church now, but that we still have a perfectly valid, extraordinary form of the Mass, and that's the Latin Mass. The Mass, ironically, that they celebrated every day at Vatican II. It's kind of hard for it to be kind of the enemy of Vatican II if that's the Mass they were using at Vatican II. But anyway, he said, I believe these two Masses can live side by side if the advocates of both will be tolerant of each other, will accept each other, and 
will totally accept the validity of Vatican II, the texts of Vatican II, as the valid form of our church right now, and that we'll go forward together with both. Now, does that sound like the middle? It sounds like the exact center. In the sense that he's trying to say, we've had enough fighting, let's see if these two things can go together. Now, this is what Francis has now said. I'm hearing from lots of people that this hasn't worked. This was Benedict and St. Pope John Paul II. It was good for them to try to accept the Latin Mass. He uses a kind of condescending, in my opinion, word. Pope Francis said that Benedict was comforted by his belief that, and here's the quote, two forms of the Roman Rite could enrich one another. But he says that just isn't how it's turned out. The Latin Mass people have exploited what Benedict did and have created this divisive, angry church, which we're now going to have to crack down on in all of the ways that have made it into the coverage. And I think the Associated Press story that came out when this story broke was actually a very good story. Lord knows I would not want to have to write about this subject in like 700 words on deadline. I mean, unbelievably complex, but a lot of the key statements made it into that first AP story. Now, I don't know how many Americans got to see that story. We haven't had that much of a pickup in the rest of the mainstream. But meanwhile, boy, Catholic Twitter completely, totally melted down. And if you read it, you couldn't help thinking, this isn't really about the Latin Mass. This really isn't about, it's not even about one form of the Latin Mass. Let me stress for a second that I think there are people on the left side of the church who would be just as mad if a conservative Catholic priest came into his sanctuary, went to the altar, did the traditional facing east with his back to the congregation, stood at the altar, and did the Novus Ordo Mass in Latin. It was written in Latin. The original form of the Vatican II Mass is in Latin. If he did that Mass in Latin, with the choir singing Gregorian chant and altar boys standing on both sides of the altar instead of a mix of boys and girls, altar girls, you know, inside the altar space. I think there would be a lot of liberals who would be just as opposed to that Mass as they would be to the celebration of the older Tridentine Mass. In fact, I'm looking right now to see if some bishops are interpreting it that way. I've seen priests on Twitter ask, wait a minute, do I have to ask permission from my bishop now to do the new Mass in Latin? Do I have to ask permission from my bishop to use incense for the choir to sing Gregorian chant for all the other things that are now associated with the Latin Mass? But really, you know, there's no reason you couldn't do them with the modern Mass. I've been to English language masses that were astonishingly beautiful. You know, and one or more times a week, I go to an Eastern Rite service in the Orthodox context, which is in English. But we're singing centuries 
of music, in Byzantine music. And Catholics that come to our services, the most traditional of Catholics who come to our services, have said they think it's a very beautiful service. And here's another story to watch for. Some of them are beginning to ask, now is the Pope going to crack down on the Eastern Rite Catholic churches now? The Catholic churches that use the older liturgy, divine liturgy from the East, Ukrainian Catholics, Greek Catholics, Palestinian Catholics, Melkites, all of these other rites that use the Eastern divine liturgy, at some point are bishops going to say, we wish we could crack down on them as well. We're getting too many ordinary Catholics are fleeing over there to get a really beautiful service instead of the kind of guitar liturgical dance, happy clappy service at their local suburban Catholic parish. There's more to this than the Tridentine Mass. It's really about worship, tradition, and I believe about the evolution of doctrine. I wanted to briefly discuss what you left us with before the break, and that was the evolution of doctrine. I have been an observer of the worship wars in my own Lutheran denomination for decades now, and I have come to the conclusion it's never about music, it's never about style, it's never about missions, it's always about a difference in doctrine. What are your thoughts there with respect to the Latin Mass? Well, I don't want to get into the Lutheran situation because I think a lot of what happens, especially in Missouri Synod, is conflicts between kind of evangelical megachurch-type people and those who are looking for the historic roots of the worship that would have been used at the time of Luther and Luther's own approach to a Reformed Catholicism. I think that's a bigger issue, but I think you're on to something there. I mean, in the sense that obviously there are doctrine issues and polity issues between the kind of megachurch form of life and worship and free church evangelicalism versus the more traditional forms of Lutheranism that you would see attached to people relearning how to do the traditional services and even some of the music that has roots in Gregorian chant. You know, when I was at the Issues Etc. conference, now I guess two years ago now, or has it been three years, I was shocked when y'all did evening prayer and a lot of the Psalms are being chanted in what was clearly a Gregorian form. I know enough about Gregorian chant to recognize that. So in the Catholic context, I think you would see something similar in that charismatic Catholics don't have, and which some of whom would call themselves evangelicals, they don't have any trouble at all with the modern mass. They kind of like it, and they'll do folk bands and rock bands and more charismatic style Pentecostal liturgy built on top of the Novus Ordo. I don't think a lot of those people would be doing the Tridentine Mass with Gregorian chant. So in some ways, their service might superficially look a lot like another suburban parish that, you know, might be more liberal on a, on a lot of other issues. I think the bigger issue here, and you, you see this in some of the commentaries about this event, I think there really are people on the left who are thinking, especially with Pope Francis being in the hospital for 10 or 12 days, I think they really are thinking the Pope's got to change the church now or we're going to lose our chance because the third world is more conservative, the African bishops are more conservative, the Asian bishops are more conservative. And when you, you listen to some of these voices, it's pretty apparent 
that bishops and cardinals from that generation are some of the folks that who asked for this change. There was a great commentary that I read by someone on the right, and you'll probably remember that in the past I've often said that when you find liberals and conservatives saying basically the same thing, explaining a major event, you're probably pretty close to the truth. Well, I read two commentaries that I think really summed this up well. One was by a Catholic conservative named Amy Wellborn, someone I've known for years and a good friend of Rodrier. And she opened this way. She said, we need to apply Occam's razor to this whole thing that Pope Francis has put out, the muto proprio, the letter on this subject. And here's what she said. It seems pretty simple to me. A number of bishops wanted the tools to restrict the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, and Pope Francis gave it to them. There you go. I mean, we can talk history, ecclesiology, theology, and liturgy all day long, but that's about as basic as it gets or it needs to be. I was there. Well, not literally, but I can tell you that this generation of clergy and church activists, now maybe from their late 60s on up, were formed in a way that they cannot envision a healthy church in which the Latin Mass is still a part at all. Now, these people are very... Now, I mentioned earlier the uh, Society of St. Pius Tenth. They're probably more concerned about another group called the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, which was created by St. Pope John Paul II, or was created with his blessing in 88. And this group now has like 300 priests and 150 seminarians around the world. They're in 130 dioceses. And in America, they have 112 priests in almost 40 dioceses. And these are the people that bishops who are sympathetic to the vision of Benedict XVI, these are the people that many bishops are allowing to come in, and they may even create a church dedicated, build a church in some cases, dedicated to the celebration of the Tridentine Mass. But they're doing this with the agreement that these people will be cooperative members of the local diocese, and I imagine most of them are. I think the image that people are getting through the press coverage is that all of the people who love the Latin Mass are the radicals, and that simply isn't accurate. And journalists are going to have to separate the anti-Vatican II people from the more mainstream priests and parishes who are cooperating with their bishops and are using the Latin Mass, and in some cases, these parishes are growing rapidly and are quite young, and they're also producing a lot of priests. Now, what intrigued me is that one of the most articulate voices of the Catholic left wrote a piece for the Religion News Service called The Beginning of the End of the Francis Papacy. And in this piece, you get this vision of Pope Francis against the world, that you have all of these bishops and priests who love Benedict and love St. Pope John Paul II, and these guys are fighting Francis in his vision of the church, and they're getting in his way, and they've got all the young seminarians, that the seminarians are all right-wing, something that I think most conservative Catholics would find hilarious, to think that the seminaries are the heart of the right these days. 
But at the end, he wrote a remarkable paragraph, and he admits that the, the U.S. bishops are divided on these issues and that there are some that are with Pope Francis and that, in his view, there are many more that are against him. Now, if you plug that into the Latin Mass story, I think he's implying that there are many, many bishops who liked the compromise, who liked being able to work with people that were using both of the rights. But listen to this paragraph. Finding young Catholics for the priesthood, meanwhile, who support Francis and want to be celibate is like looking for Catholic unicorns. And if you find some, they aren't likely to be welcomed by conservative seminaries. As a result, the laity who are encouraged to come to church because they like Francis are unlikely to find him in their parishes or dioceses. So here's someone on the left who views the world going totally against them, and Francis has to act now to defend the great project of reforming the church. The spirit of Vatican II must go forward. And that line about trying to find Catholics for the priesthood who support Francis and are willing to be celibate, what a loaded phrase, that those people are as rare as unicorns. Wow, that's a remarkable statement. But what Welburn is writing and what Father Reese is writing are really quite compatible. They just disagree on who has the momentum and kind of who's running the show right now, which means they have differing opinions of the effect of Francis's act. But they, they in a strange way, they agree on what a lot of the things that are at stake. I find that fascinating, and I could find you all kinds of other examples on Twitter that would show you similar patterns. One of the things I found fascinating is, and these are early, and these bishops are going to be very cautious, and they're always very measured in the way that they make these statements, but they are also pretty clear that some of the bishops are outright saying, we're going to just let the Latin Mass continue in our under our diocese, and, and we're going to watch the situation. We, we think yeah. the Pope may have some concerns here. And one of them even said, I'm going to study the Pope's letter carefully over the next weeks and months, and until then... Things are going to stay the way they are in this diocese. It seems to me that's a very, very gentle way of either pushing back or at least digging in your heels on this issue. Well, there's actually, you, you missed what I thought was the most remarkable phrase in that bishop's statement. You're talking about Denver Archbishop Samuel Aquila, and he said he was going to, uh, with the help of canon lawyers, and then he said, and with the help of the U.S. Catholic Bishops' Conference— I'm going to make up my mind about this. I don't want to act precipitously. I thought the, the strongest part of his statement was him saying, you know, I, I think we need to discuss this at the U.S. Bishop, Catholic Bishops Conference, at which point he may be saying a majority of the bishops there are going to favor the Benedict approach, and they may dig in, and what would they dig their in their heels on? I predict it will be on the issue of whether Latin masses can be used in normal diocesan churches or in the churches of specific religious orders that request it. I mean, especially such as the uh, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. Oh, and by the way, Francis's order said no new churches dedicated to the Tridentine Mass. 
which means no new parishes for the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. None. Anywhere. Local bishops cannot do that. That's a remarkable statement, and you may see some tugging and pushing there. The other statement that really got to me, and it has a lot to do with the personality involved here, it was interesting how many of the statements that came out in favor of Benedict's approach were obviously from cardinals who were very closely identified with Benedict. And Cardinal Robert Serra of Africa, who was until recently the head of the Vatican office for worship, for issues of liturgy and worship, he put out, instead of, instead of releasing a statement, or at least the sentence that's getting quoted from his statement, he just quoted Benedict himself with a quote that said, what earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too. And it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful, unquote. Benedict the Sixteenth, And of course, the fact that Benedict is still alive makes this all the more poignant. But the statement that just set alarms off for me is from the man who until recently was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, one of the most powerful Vatican offices there is. And this is Cardinal Gerhard Müller of Germany. And he, he stressed that he sees no need for what he calls sterile uniformity on liturgy. <laughs> Did he, you, you normally don't see these kinds of cardinals using common language. He said there's no reason that the Catholic Church's worship needs to look like, quote, one of the international hotel chains with their homogeneous design. Now, listen to this next statement and say this is being written by a German, and he's talking, in effect, about what Pope Francis seems to want, or at least what the bishops behind Pope Francis want. Listen to this quote, and remember, this is written by someone in Germany. The unity of believers with one another is rooted in unity in God through faith, hope, and love, and has nothing to do with uniformity in appearance, the lockstep of a military formation, or the groupthink of the big tech age. What do you think of when you hear the phrase lockstep of a military formation? It certainly uh, casts a certain image in German history. That's to be the understatement of the year. There seems to be an allusion there to this radical enforced uniformity of German troops marching in the Nazi era in lockstep. I thought that was perhaps the most remarkable image that I saw anybody. That and the Catholic unicorn image from the Father Reese thing. These are the, some of the images that struck me at just how emotional this subject is to people and how high the stakes are. Here's a question I would like to have answered, and that is, I'm sure something like this has happened because Catholic history is quite complicated, especially from papacy to papacy. But have we entered essentially the era of the executive order where U.S. presidents undo hmm. one another's accomplishments that were achieved first by executive order, by subsequent executive orders, where, as you mentioned, Benedict is still alive. He is the predecessor pope. And while he still lives, he has been basically reversed on this. Right. And Francis's successor can reverse him on this. That's actually a really, really good image for what this feels like. 
In other words, we can't live together. Benedict was wrong to think that both of these rights could live together and that the middle of the spectrum could peacefully coexist. Benedict was wrong, thus I need to executive order, I need to decree the following will take place. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church isn't a democracy. Popes get to write executive orders, and they get to write executive orders that have, in some cases, very rare cases, have the force of Catholic doctrine formally stated. I mean, the papal infallibility has only been used once, maybe in some way twice, but it's an extremely rare thing. But this is a church in which the Pope gets to do things like this. But I found myself reading all this stuff online and thinking to myself, how many American bishops are there right now who genuinely want the Latin mass erased, and how many are there that want to protect the vision of Benedict that we could, over time, get this to work together? And that's when the Archbishop of Denver said, maybe we need to, I'll discuss this with the U.S. Catholic Bishops Conference. That's what I see looming over this. What if one of these issues came up for a vote in the U.S. Catholic Bishops Conference, because this pope is all supposed to be about synodality. I mean, the German bishops are talking about making huge changes in Catholic doctrine. What if the U.S. bishops simply said, you know that thing about not letting these masses occur in a diocesan church? We disagree. And we're going to say that local bishops in America have the option of allowing this to continue in their own diocesan churches. And we think that should be the normal policy, at which point you would have some bishops vote against it, and some would protest and say, no more Latin Mass in my diocese, at which point we will openly see what the reality is. This is yet another example of a battle inside the U.S. Catholic Bishops Conference, which is what we see on so many issues right now, everything from Holy Communion for dissenting Catholics who are politicians, to issues of liturgy, to issues of whether seminaries need to be reformed, etc., etc., etc. We will have an open, honest discussion of what everybody knows are some of the actual issues. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.